from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? Well, more strange days. Our incumbent president insists that our voting process is a disaster and that the results won't be legitimate and Americans can't trust the outcome of the election in November. That's if he loses, of course. If he wins, he'll call it a perfect election. In particular, he's attacked mail-in balloting, especially in states that are concerned with COVID and are sending ballots to all registered voters. Never before in my memory has a president attacked the validity of our voting system and worked so hard to create doubt and distrust for the democratic process that we hold so dear. Is it possible that there's some truth to what our president is claiming? Do we understand and are we prepared for the likely mess that November will bring? What can each of us do to prepare and optimize the likelihood for a peaceful end to this crazy year? We're at ground zero, people, so today we're asking one of the world's greatest election experts to set us straight. This is Politics, Meet Me in the Middle. I'm Bill Curtis. Let's meet our panel, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, best-selling author, prolific lecturer, and a beloved professor at Pepperdine University, Ed Larson. Nice to see you zoomed in, Ed. Nice to see you as well, Bill. Also zooming in, Jane Albrecht. She's an international trade attorney who fought for U.S. economic and business interests to high-level government officials all over the world. She is a dedicated political activist and has participated on numerous presidential campaigns. Hi there, nice to see you remotely, Jane. Nice to see you too. And now our special guest, Robin Carnahan. She is the former Secretary of State of Missouri, and as Secretary of State, one of her primary functions was ensuring that elections were fair. She's known for having modernized and improved Missouri's election systems, implementing the first statewide voter registration system, creating the Missouri Voting Rights Center, and launching new interactive election results websites. She's also served as co-chair of the Elections Committee for the Bipartisan National Association of Secretaries of State. Since her tenure as Secretary of State in her role with the National Democratic Institute, Robin has served in countries all over the world, monitoring elections, training political leaders, and drafting voting laws. Welcome, Robin Carnahan. Good of you to join us. It's great to be here, Bill. So, Robin, I wonder if you could tell us, what is a state secretary of state's function when it comes to elections? So, the original job of secretary of state was very much administrative. And if you think back to the time of kings, where you had to have a seal to show that something was an official document, the original secretaries were always the keepers of the great seal, which showed these were official documents or actions of the government. And so that continues to be an important role in offices. And over time, in many states, the Secretary of State is the chief elections officer of the state. It's a sort of a strange reference because, in, as you know, in our system, elections are all completely run locally. So no Secretary of State ever touches a ballot or prints a ballot or counts a ballot. But they do set policies, and they are the sort of conduit for federal money and state money that flows down to counties or local election jurisdictions. Was there ever a time where a candidate attempted to invalidate an election prior to Election Day? 
Oh, sure. There are many times when a candidate has predicted disasters and warned of disasters in coming elections. Probably the most famous was 1876, when the Republicans feared enormous voter suppression of African Americans in the America in the South during Reconstruction. So, sure. And there were worries during wars. There have been a lot of times where there's been worried. Now, local level, I assume it comes up at the local level. There have been a lot of accusations of fraudulent state legislative elections and state elections in in a variety of states. I'm sure Robin (laughs) served as a secretary of state next door to notorious Illinois, and she probably has endless stories about Illinois elections. Well, look, there's always a lot of speculation around elections. Anytime that you have 150 million Americans doing the same thing at the same time with essentially volunteers running the process, I mean, even in the best of times, elections are pretty miraculous because of all the logistics that it takes to pull them off. But certainly now with the threats are not just one-off threats, they're more systemic and that's what makes it troubling. And when did election results shift from taking months to count to an expected election day outcome? Oh, for all practical purposes, it came with the electronic transmission of results, which would come with the telegraph. Before that, it would take a long time for the results. I know that in 1800, John Adams went to bed thinking he'd won the election over Jefferson. And of course he hadn't, but he didn't know what South Carolina had done and Pennsylvania and the other states. But once you had the electronic transfer of results, it happened pretty quick because remember, elections used to take place in person. There was no ballots to count. People just went down and dropped a ball in a, in a bucket or made their announcement. And so people on the spot knew exactly how the results had come out there and it just had to communicate it. And once you had telegraphs that communicate it, elections very quickly became the biggest news there was in America. People followed those closely. So if I may, I'd like to read a list of eight states for no particular reason and ask you how secure you feel their election process is and if they're going to be prepared to deal with the stress of mail-in ballots. Wisconsin, Florida, Minnesota, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, and Arizona, for no particular reason, other than those are pretty much the states that are going to make or break this election for one of the other parties, I believe. So let's start with Wisconsin, Florida, and Minnesota. Are those states prepared for this unique election that we're about to have? I certainly hope so. I don't pretend to have a crystal ball about all the preparations that those states have made. But all of this comes down to the ability of these election officials to do their job. And that's been hard this year. It's hard because they want to do the right things. It's hard because the rules are changing. It's hard because the way people want to vote are changing. And it's hard because of all the political rhetoric around what's happening with elections and sort of undermining people's confidence in what they do. So congratulations. You've just been reelected as secretary of state of, oh, let's pick Wisconsin. What are you going to do to try to ensure that this election is beyond reproach? So I think elections are, are about a couple of things. Anytime elections are sort of a miracle, as I said, but you have to agree on the rules. And so the first thing I would want to do is have a lot of clarity with all the folks who are running the elections about what the rules and the process are. And I would want to make sure they had whatever they needed to effectively administer that. And whether that's extra PPE, whether that's extra staff that know how to do technology on their teams, whether it's helping with media and communicating about when results are going to come in. 
All of those things are things I would be focused on to try to just give them support. You know, one of the things that a lot of states are thinking about right now is how to change their election reporting sites that they've had for all these years. The parlance of secretaries of state and election officials has always been election night reporting, that you go as a voter or you go as a press outlet to the website for the election night results. Well, guess what? We don't have an election day anymore and we don't have an election night result anymore. And the reason for that is People aren't just voting on election day. They're voting weeks in advance of election day. So this is an election season. And those votes can be counted past election day if they're postmarked on election day generally in most states. Now, states' rules are different about when you can begin to process ballots. But it's 100% certain that's not they're not going to all be counted on election night. And in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, states you mentioned in particular, they are not by law allowed to begin to process those until election day. Normally, the Secretary of State's office certifies the vote in the end, do they not? And then how long does it take? The certification by the Secretary of State is weeks after the election. But the counties, which are the jurisdictions that run the election, they have a, what's called a canvas and those generally happen at various times. I was on with an election official recently, I think maybe in Wisconsin, who said that the 9th was the day of the canvas in Wisconsin. So they had until the 9th to like get all their votes counted. And so that's, that's a week after election day. So Jane, let me put you on the spot, if I may. Doesn't Trump sort of have a fair point here in, you hear stories about states sending out mail-in ballots to every registered voter, including dead people, people who've moved, duplicates. Why don't states do more to ensure that their voting records are up to date? Why do you suppose we're kind of back in the dark ages? Trump's complaint is that when you're sending out mail-in ballots to everyone, that's different than when someone requests an absentee ballot. So a lot of states, including California sometimes, don't keep their voting registries up to date. How widespread is that and what would it take to fix it? Well, that's a great question. And there are lots of ways states try to keep their lists up to date. And they do that regularly and by federal law are required to do that to send mail and make sure that folks still live in that address. There's also a consortium of states that has, I think, more than 30 involved with a cross-state matching system where you can deduplicate your voter lists. But lists are notoriously hard. People die, people move. But but then again, let, let's talk about a process for a minute, Robin, because in this day and age, while you can do your banking online and keep track of the flow of money and security is high and it is incredibly specific and three, four, five times checked over, why is it that a deduping process can't occur after the vote to make sure that A, people haven't voted twice, B, someone who has voted is still alive? Wouldn't you eliminate 99% of the problem that could occur from a database? Number one, the banking system has billions of dollars invested in it and the election system, not much. So that's number one. Number two, there are some accounts of election fraud, but not very many in the grand scheme of things. And the actual occurrence of people voting more than once or a dead person voting is like completely remote and the thing of fiction in most cases. So do dead people have ballots that sometimes are sent to their homes because the list hasn't been updated with Social Security death records? Of course. Do sometimes dead people's names still occur on these lists, a voter list? Of course it happens. 
but there's no evidence of a dead person voting. There's just none. Dead people don't get out of the grave and vote. People don't go and vote more than once. And so the deduping process doesn't have to happen after the fact. It happens before the fact. But we're now two months into our election process being second-guessed by the current sitting president. So that, that means we have to react differently than we would normally react. And all I'm suggesting is if there is doubt in the process of sending out too many ballots to too many people to addresses where they no longer live or maybe they're no longer living, then an easy way to solve the issue would be a deduping process after the election, which has got to be almost instantaneous as you scan and upload someone's vote if it's paper or you have someone voting by machine. I can't understand why there isn't more of an overwhelming solution to a ridiculous accusation of our election process. So this is totally not a technology problem. Like you're 100% correct that there are lots of ways you could have technology used to fix all of this. That takes money and it takes an investment and we haven't made it as Americans. And so we're getting through this process as best we can with lots of rules changing and not much money invested in the process. So are there improvements? Heck yeah. Am I for them? Absolutely. And I'm hoping that after this election, we'll be able to come to some consensus as a country to have some more standardization in some of these rules. Like, frankly, if you ask me, it's completely unfair that some people get to easily vote at home and have a ballot mailed to them and other people have to have an excuse and a notary and show up or show up in person in order to vote. To me, that is an equal protection, big difference, and should be challenged under equal protection provisions. I understand that there have been a lot of bills introduced to Congress that would have provided money to the states to upgrade their voting systems. Most of those were actually put up by the Democrats, I understand. But did any of them ever pass? And if not, why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I think they passed a $400 million bill this spring, and they had another significant chunk either last year or the year before. The problem is a lot of that was a little bit too little and a little too late. There are only a few folks who make election voting machines. There's not a giant market for this. It's very specific. You need to have some advanced warning, and that's not a thing that you can just flip the switch on in two or three months and have everybody up to speed with new machines and everybody trained on how to use those. Elections only happen every couple of times a year at best. And so that's why this is a challenge is because we only do this every now and then and we keep changing the way we do it. And so keeping up with that is expensive. Is the problem that the states generally don't have the money or don't want to spend the money on new technology for voting and therefore they always need help from the federal government? Yeah, states don't tend to spend money on this because they have limited budgets. And so then you have to decide, like, is this just a state problem or is this a national problem? And every now and then the Congress decides it's a national problem if it gets big and bad enough and they throw some money at it. Have there been any cases where the security of at least the computer and software process of counting votes from machines has been compromised that we've known of? What I know is that the voting machines are not connected to the Internet in any state. And that's good, right? Because it's the only things that are connected to the internet that have the ability to be easily hacked. How do they communicate their results? So that's not the actual voting machines. That is the election reporting sites. And that is a thing that goes on the internet. And so I think that there's a lot of effort being made right now to make sure those are robust and secure as possible. But just remember, even if things change, even if, God forbid, somebody messed with the results in one of these states that was just reported, 
that doesn't change a vote, right? And every state goes back and they do audits and they double check and triple check before they certify the actual results of the election. So just because something looks funky on election night or the next day doesn't mean that's the end of it. There are backstops and belts and suspenders for for all of these things. And that's what we need to keep in mind. We're going to take a quick break. We're here with Robin Carnahan, Ed Larson, and Jane Albrecht. We'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Okay, we're back with Robin Carnahan, Ed Larson, and Jane Albrecht. Well, wonder, Robin, if we can get on to this November election. We're in a place where the incumbent has damaged our faith in the process, of course, unless he wins. What will the secretaries of state do if their state elects one candidate, but the incumbent denies its validity? Basically, slapping the secretary of state in the face. How will they react to that? I can only tell you how I would react to that and how I think that my former colleagues would react. And that is that they were elected by the citizens of their state to do a job, one of which is to oversee the elections. So that's who they answer to. And I would expect them to stand up for the results that their county officials have provided to them. So I can't anticipate what all these circumstances are, but they're doing their job. And if they feel like they've done it well, I can't imagine that they wouldn't publicly say that. So... Ed, if you were in charge of this election and you wanted to make this election most impervious to doubt and objection by the loser, what would you enact? Well, I don't anticipate former Vice President Biden raising questions. And when I think about President Trump, I don't know what he believes. And so he may truly believe there is a problem with mail-in voting. And if he truly believes that, He may just be saying it so he keep office, but he may truly believe it. And if he truly believes it, well, he should do something. Well, but I'm curious, why does he believe that the problems would result in Biden becoming elected as opposed to the problems resulting in him getting elected? Why is all the corruption supposedly on one side? Jane, what do you think? I think first and foremost, you have to get out really solid information of the kind that Robin's providing today. I think public education is going to be really important. And then have as solid an election process and day as you could. If I was a state official, it's not within the Secretary of State's power. But if I were a governor or I was a mayor or whoever, I would have true protection at as many poll stations as I could. Not intimidation, but just protection to be sure things are safe and calm there. How do you feel about that, Robin? This is a really delicate thing, right? Because some people see the police as protectors and some see the police as not protectors. So that is a delicate thing. In most states, there are very clear rules about who can and cannot come into an election polling place, that there are official watchers or people delegated by the parties to be there. And they're allowed and other people are not allowed. And the whole idea is to prevent disruption on election day. So I think having people ready to go if needed is important, but I don't think we should have intimidation on either side. I agree. I think it is a delicate question. And I I think that's a good idea is have people ready to go if there are people at the polls intimidating to try to get them away. Because that's against the law. Because at that point, you're enforcing the law. 
So I don't think that it's about the security of the voting process, the professionalism of the voting process. I think that the results of this vote will be objected to in the event that the vote goes a certain way and that it's really not subject to how secure and how professional and how specific we are. Robin, I understand it's expected that more Republicans are going to vote by machine, counted on Election Day, and more Democrats will vote by mail, substantially more. And those are going to be counted in the days and weeks subsequent to the election, right? So election night may be misleading until the mail-in ballots are counted, correct? Well, well, that's for sure. So that was the second part of your question. The first was the presumption that more Democrats are going to vote in person and more Republicans are going to vote by mail. Well, that's what the polls are saying. So I, I don't know that that's true. And I think people's preferences are changing all the time. So I think that we can't count on any of that being accurate come election day. People change their minds and they can. As for the results on election night, I 100% do not think we will have final results on election night. Uh, let me go back again, and I'll say in part because we know that Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, two important swing states that are close, can't even start processing vote-by-mail ballots until election day. There are going to be millions of ballots to process, and they are not going to get through those all on election night. So I just think that unless it is a blowout one way or another, I think that we should not expect to have final results on election night. So what you're saying is that we could get to the end of election night, and you know the media pundits, they're going to be busy reporting on every nuance, every lead, every, there's 1% of the vote in, and they're trying to project who's going to win. What advice do you have for our listeners to be prepared for a complex election day, the frustrating election week, and potentially the months after? So, you know, you only can control the things you can control. So I always encourage voters who want to know what they can do to either vote early in person or vote their mail ballot and get it back early. For states where you can start processing those ballots before Election Day, which is most of them, it just makes it easier on election officials. So the sooner you can vote and just be out of the process, the easier it is on election officials who have a lot of pressure come Election Day. So, for example, if you want your vote counted and reported on on Election Day, it's a good idea to, if you're going to vote by mail, vote early, vote now. And if you're going to vote in person, if you have a chance to do it before Election Day, do that too. But as you pointed out, that varies by state. There are states that they won't account, if you, even if you vote early, they won't count your ballot until Election Day. There are some states. There are other states that will count your ballot when it comes in. And you can see that if you're watching on election night, because in some states, as soon as the polls close, there's an explosion of number of votes. Those are the states where they've already counted them. In other states where they don't do that, that's where you get this long red shift or blue shift happening later. But of course, there's only a red or blue shift if members of one party or supporting one person tend to vote by write-in more than the other. And as Robin points out, we don't know that's going to be true. There's a tremendous push by the Democratic Party now to encourage their people to vote live. I am wondering, though, many people are not using mail-in ballots, but they're going to early voting. When you vote early, like the previous Sunday or a week before, two weeks before, in person early, when are those votes counted? So I, I can't speak for every state or election jurisdiction, but in, in my state, those would be treated as absentee ballots, and those could be counted in my state prior to Election Day. 
and those would be reported in that first tranche of returns. So we always would refer to those as the midday numbers. So all of the thing that came in before the polls closed would be basically the early votes that either came in by mail or came in in person that could be reported. And that's what you put out as soon as the polls close because those you've already taken care of. So that's why I think wherever you can vote early in person, wherever you can vote early by mail, but just go ahead and get it over with. Let's talk about the scenario in which Trump doesn't accept the outcome of the election. And the most likely scenario is if election night looks like he wins and then subsequently as mail-in ballots are counted, it shifts and he loses. Because then he will say that the fraud occurred in a place that he can identify, which is the mail-in ballots, the counting of the mail-in ballots. That's what we're really afraid of is a situation can get created where there is a reason to doubt the validity of the election, which is why we're saying to people, get out and vote now, vote early, make sure that your vote is counted in the first tranche of your state's accounting, right? Yeah, it's just everything is easier if it gets done early. So I I would be for that. I think that, look, every state has a law. This is not a law that's made by Donald Trump or anybody else. It is a law that's made by the states about the rules of what ballots get counted. And for most states, you have to have a postmark by election day. And then there are some number of days that the mail has to arrive. And those are valid votes that they are by law required to count. Well, we're going to talk about the various types of court challenges that you may expect in just a minute. We'll be back actually in 30 seconds. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic read extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second dice. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time. Okay, we're back with Robin Carnahan. And Robin, I wonder if you could tell us a little about where do you think that the likely appeals to a court decision may occur in this election in the event it doesn't go the way that our incumbent president hopes? Yeah, there are an awful lot of court challenges that have already been filed that I suspect are sort of setting up for the next stage for post-election. We've seen them in South Carolina about witness requirements. We've seen them in North Carolina about how you do ballot curing for any kind of problem with the ballot. Uh, We've seen them in Pennsylvania about opening times and when ballots are getting sent to people. So yeah, I think we're going to have a crazy amount of litigation about the election and very sort of specific processes about the elections. And have we kind of had a history of candidates trying to suppress votes 
Oh, my gosh. America has a deep and rich history of voter suppression. It goes back to the beginning of our country, colonial times. You go from colony to colony, and there was systematic vote suppression. Of course, Black people couldn't vote. Women couldn't vote. Usually, you had to own property to vote, and in some states, considerable amount of property. Immigrants couldn't vote in many places. And then when we declared our independence and we went to the Constitutional Convention, what the Constitutional Convention did after much debate was institutionalize those state efforts to suppress votes or not suppress votes. They left it to the states. Many people at the Constitutional Convention, led by Ben Franklin, wanted to have, well, it's going to be federal elections for Congress. We should have federal standards. But they decided instead to leave it entirely up to the states. So every state was able to perpetuate their particular efforts. I mean, in some states, you had to be a member of the established church to vote in colonial times. And then all that was pushed even further by the electoral college system. Because the electoral college system, one of its purposes was to facilitate suppression of votes by states, because you were given a number of votes in the electoral college, not based on how many people voted, but on how many people, people, whether you allowed them to vote or not, how many people lived in that state? So if you suppress the votes of based on race or based on religion or based on ethnicity or based on immigrant status or based on wealth, you still got your full electoral college. So it was intentionally adopted the electoral college system as a way to perpetuate or facilitate voter suppression. We have a long history of voter suppression that continues to this day. But there's a type of suppression that I don't really understand. I, I can certainly understand why one party or the other would try to suppress a specific people that are very likely going to vote the other party. But for example, in the case, we, we have a state that is expecting to throw out 100,000 ballots because the voter won't know to put the security envelope around their ballot and and supply it in the way that the instructions outline. And for some reason, the Republicans want those ballots to be thrown out. The Democrats are fighting against that. What I don't understand is, is there a suggestion that there are more Republicans that are highly educated than Democrats that are highly educated and therefore can read and follow instructions? Or what would be the reason behind that kind of clear, in my mind, voter suppression if you just simply forgot the security envelope and didn't read the instructions? Well, I think the general feeling in the Democratic Party is that when more people vote, Democrats tend to win. And in a state like North Carolina or South Carolina, the general feeling is that the more people turn out, the less wealthy people turn out, the more people of color, the more the Democrats are going to win. Robin, any any thoughts here? Obviously, people think that there are going to be more mistakes made by certain voters than others, and that's why they're tr trying to do this. I think with those particular rules in Pennsylvania about the envelope, those were originally intended for a feels like a pretty legitimate purpose, which is secrecy of the ballot. Right. And so the idea was to protect the vote and the secrecy and the privacy of the voter, but also to prevent anybody messing, like looking at the vote and deciding whether they were going to tear it up or not. So you can imagine that for security reasons, it would make some sense to have something like that. And last question, Robin, before we run, 
you have served in a number of countries helping them to run elections in a democratic way, a small d. You have put in a tremendous amount of your own personal time and sweat and effort there. How does our situation today and this doubt that's being sown about our election process injure our reputation internationally as the gold standard of election processes? I do worry about that a lot. We hold ourselves out as being this grand democracy that people should strive for, and yet we're struggling as a country to figure out what are the things we value about this. So I am, as my friend Madeleine Albright says, an optimist who worries a lot. And that defines me too. I worry a lot about this election, about the potential for political violence that I didn't think we'd ever have in this country, and that I've seen in lots and lots of other countries where I've observed elections. But I'm optimistic that the more we talk about this and have people understand what's at stake and that it's beyond party, that Americans, as they have in the past, will rise to the occasion. For hundreds of years, we've been able to do peaceful transitions of power. We've been able to like count all the votes that needed to be counted and have people accept that result. And I am optimistic that we will do that again as a country. So we've learned a couple of things today. If we want to avoid confusion and have the lowest risk of objection and violence as a result of this election, don't just send in your vote on election day. Vote early if by mail, vote by machine if you can, and tell your friends and family to do the same. Check your state's voting rules and schedules on vote.org so you can vote as soon as your state makes voting available. Not only does your vote count a lot this year, but your early voting allows first returns by your state to reflect your choices. It's a good thing. And you'll even be doing your part to protect our country's global reputation for elections and peaceful transitions of power. Both are important in these unique times. Robin Carnahan, thank you so much for joining us today. And of course, Ed Larson, as always, you're a font of knowledge. Jane Albrecht, we appreciate your perspectives too. And by the way, thank you for introducing us to Robin. Robin, how do people follow you if they want to keep in touch? I'm on Twitter, at Robin Carnahan. So happy to hear from folks. Until next time, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't have to hunt around for Meet Me in the Middle next week. Thank you to our producer, A.J. Mosley. Audio mixing by Michael Kennedy. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. And the executive producer for this episode is Stuart Halperin. Again, the most powerful takeaway from this show, no matter who your candidate is, we strongly encourage you to tell your friends to vote. Vote early or vote in person. Don't wait until election day to mail in your ballots. And don't freak out on election night. No one will know the actual outcome of this election on November 3rd. Catch you next week, everybody. From Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.